place in Egypt. So it's a different law, but it's the same law. Why the distinction? Any guesses? Because of the story. The story had changed. When they were giving the law on the mountain of uh, Sinai to the people who had just been brought out of Egypt, God was giving them the law, and he was doing something very profound. He was teaching them about who he was and how he had formed them. And so why the Sabbath? Well, because of who I am, the character that I possess as God. I'm teaching the people. In Deuteronomy, where are they? Any bonus points? We did a Joshua series not long ago where we discussed this quite a bit. The people are right at the edge of the land. Remember, we talked about wiggling our toes over the Jordan before we stepped. And so God says, I give you the Sabbath. Keep it holy and remember it not to let anyone work because you once were slaves yourself. So the distinction is that now, based on the narrative, they're about to inhabit a land where they're going to be, in, they're going to be accruing wealth, they're going to be accruing power, they're going to be accruing influence. God's already taught them about who he is. They can remember that. Now he needs to reiterate who they need to be living faithfully according to the law. So the law is always tied to the story. They go hand in hand, one and the next. This is a big distinction, biblical narrative and law, from how we understand constitutional law. And it's important for us to pay attention to, right? All right, two things. As you pay attention to these stories, as you read the Torah, the first five books, first, pay attention to the forming work of God. What is the creative work of God in this passage? Read any given one of them, and you can observe what is God doing creatively. The second one, if we can go back, is this narrative structure of God and his people walking together, side by side, and learning to walk together. In Genesis 3.8, you get this, uh, this phrase about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for Adam and Eve. And this kind of drives, in many ways, the rest of the Torah, God walking in the garden with his people, God walking through the garden with his people. Any questions? So many questions, perfect. All right, the second category is historical narrative. We might break this down as all of the books, if you look in your table of contents, pull out your Bible, click on the little top button uh, in your Bible app, all of the books from Joshua through Esther. We would call these historical narratives. Two handholds for reading historical narratives. If you read any of the books between Joshua and Esther, ask yourself, is this just history? It's not just history, but it's an intentional tracking of the covenants of God. I'll say that again. So read it with one hand open to or holding on to this question. Am I tracking, how is the tracking and the developing of God's covenant with his people? God makes covenants throughout the Torah and even in the histories. Covenant being this binding agreement between two parties. God says, I will not flood the earth again as I did in the days of Noah. Well, when the Israelites start to disobey and the earth opens up and swallows 3,000 of, 3, of them in an instant... 
you become a little concerned, is he going to cause something like another global flood? Well, he does not. Pay attention to that. He gives a covenant to, the, to Abraham. I will bless you. You will be a blessing to all of the nations. And I will make your children spread out, right, like sand on the sea, or like sand uh, on the seashore, or like the stars in the sky. And then when the people are sent into exile, well, there's drama around the covenant. The history is specifically tracking the covenant promises from God's end and, of course, as we're especially keen to, from the people's end. How faithful are God's people being to these same covenants? The other thing you need to pay attention to is geography. I won't tell you to do much more with that, but geography holds the keys to a ton of things. Keep a map in front of you as you read through the histories. And when there's a word of a place that they are, make note of it. Start drawing stuff out. Have some fun. Pay attention to the covenant. Pay attention to the actual movement of people. The next category, the next genre that we see is poetry, right? Poetry, we primarily think of the Psalms. I want you to think of the Psalms as you read the Psalms in these two ways. One, as a mirror. The Psalms are unique among Scripture um, because of the way that they expose or reflect our own heart, our own emotions, our own spiritual states back to us. We'll go back real quick and we'll get to that in a second, Cindy. Thank you, but we want it. Think of the Psalms as a two-way street. On the one hand, you'll find our words to God. And on the other hand, you'll find God's words to us. And again, the beautiful thing about the Psalms is that our words, as expressed into the Psalms, are honest. Meaning that they're not purely optimistic. They're not purely pessimistic, right? They're honest about our own sin. They're honest about our own joys, right? They're articulate, and because they are articulate, we can trust them. If we don't have words to say ourselves, we can trust the articulation of the scriptures in the Psalms. If you find yourself emotionally overwhelmed or underwhelmed, go to the Psalms, read them, and let yourself be mirrored in them. And finally, they're appropriate. Nothing in the Psalms is inappropriate from the perspective of these are an exposition of our own hearts, of our own emotions, of our own status. So, Cindy, go back to Psalm 137 as an example of this. This is a tragic psalm, and all of the, the genre categories can have some carryover, and so the psalms themselves have context. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Look up Babylon. Figure out where that is. Try and put it on a timeline. Know where you are. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Which is a mocking thing to say about a country you just destroyed. The captors, right? Sing us the songs of that city that I just burned down that was your home. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Right? 
is a terrifying and a tragic and what in many kind of like church contexts we would call an inappropriate thing to say. And yet here in the Psalms, we find honest. Do you hear honesty in that Psalm? We find articulate words and appropriate, if not always <laughs> kind <laughs> necessarily, uh, examples of God's covenant people pouring their hearts out before the Lord in a way that we can too. If your home is destroyed, if your family is, is, is overburdened or, or uh, worse, right? The Psalms are the place that you can go, not for law, not for story, not for narrative, right? But to let your experience of being a human being in a broken world with a really beautiful and good and marvelous God come forward. Poetry, it's totally different, extremely good. Wisdom literature, how are we doing on time? Terrible? Perfect. Wisdom literature, uh, let's go to Proverbs 1 real quick. Um, <clears throat> wisdom literature, we think of Proverbs, we think of Ecclesiastes, we think of Lamentations, which kind of falls uh, in the category of, of poetry as well. We think even of Job, which is a fascinating book for a dozen reasons. Proverbs 1, verse 8, says this, very nice and summarily. Uh, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So in the wisdom literature, we have in broad categories two things to pay attention to. One, this is broadly general revelation. A lot of this is just your father's instruction, the wisdom of your mother. These are the lessons that we can learn from the people who have, as it said, begun to understand the threading of creation, right? Proverbs give us a glimpse at the inner workings, the fabrics that kind of weave together all of the ways things work in the world. So as you go to Proverbs, you're not finding these prophetic messages. You're not finding necessarily these be beautiful poems that express the heart and the desires and the passions and the needs of human beings, but you are finding wisdom. You are finding insight that can be gained from an attentive, unclouded mind and from the history of God's people being faithful to him in the world. And then you get to prophecy. Or prophesy, as it says up there. Prophecy. First off, prophecy is at its core an act of mediation between God and people. It's the prophet giving God's perspective to the people, standing in God's place, not as God, but as his voice, to speak to the people about God's observations about what's happening in the world, especially as we talked about in reference to the covenants that he's made. It's also often the prophet standing in the place of the people and going to God, demanding his faithfulness according to his covenant. And so you pay attention to this mediation, often the tug of war that happens between a faithful and holy God and an unfaithful, unholy people trying to pull against each other and work together out the, the, the blessing of all nations. Track the covenant. Pay attention to the narrative. Prophecy is really tricky. We're going to talk more about that next week, I believe. And then apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic stands as a unique form of prophecy. Uh, you think, of course, of the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, um, but you can also find apocalyptic writing throughout Daniel in Ezekiel. Um, Jesus writes apocalyptically, as does Paul in the New Testament. 
And just a couple handholds. There's a lot more we could say about apocalyptic. But when you read apocalyptic, read it as both appropriate to the time that it's written in. Daniel wrote his apocalyptic stuff, visions from the Lord, to a people he believed they would be relevant to. But also end times oriented. And so you're going to hold both of those at once. Revelation was relevant to the people of the first century, and profoundly so. But it wasn't just relevant to them. It also communicated things about end times and about the future. And it's also written in generally coded language. It uses a ton of symbolism. It uses imagery. Um, and yet, Christians, us, who are familiar and accustomed to the Bible, to the rest of the literature, to the faithfulness of God and to the character of God, ought to be able to understand it, right? It's like a code that if you know the Lord, you can read. This was extremely important in the times that apocalyptic literature was written. You think of Daniel. Anybody know where Daniel was when he wrote? Babylon. What did Babylon do to the Israelites? They enslaved them, right? So if Daniel goes publicly writing, well, our God's going to just obliterate you guys. What does that do for Daniel's job security, right? The same in the first century when John is writing Revelation. Who did, uh, who, who killed Jesus? Which, you know, countries, nationalities, aperture was Jesus killed on? The Romans, Right? Who was in charge of every city and town that the Jews went to? The Romans. And so if they go around saying, Caesar's kind of of the devil and our God's going to destroy him, how's that do for their job security? You understand? And so there's an intentionality in apocalyptic literature of being written cryptically. So if a Roman guard picks up Revelation, he's going to be like, this is just weird. This is hot. This is what, how, how we usually feel about Revelation too. This is weird. This is difficult. I don't get this. Throw it away. If a Christian picks it up, they'll pick up the symbolism. They'll pick up what's happening, right? And so it's cryptic, but it's meant to be understandable. Don't get lost too deeply in it. Apocalyptic literature. Next, we go to the New Testament. Some of these carry over, and we've got gospel. Gospel in its shortest form is an eyewitness testimony to Jesus. These are stories about Jesus, about what Jesus said, and a little bit of commentary on what he said and what he did. In other words, the Gospels are the new covenant version of narrative and law. Think again to what we talked about the Old Testament. The law is never disassociated from narrative. Can you separate in Jesus his giving of the new law, the law of the Spirit, the new covenant, and the story of salvation found in his life? They're inseparable, right? And so you pay attention when you read the Gospel to both the words, as they give commands, as they give law, as they teach truth, right? And also the story, as it invites us to walk alongside him. Remember, walking in the garden. Jesus comes, not just coming to give a new constitutional document that we can read and be done with. He comes and he says, follow me, follow me, follow me. It's about walking together. And then, lastly, we've got the epistles. The epistles are letters. Epistle just means letters. And these are a big old amalgamation of poetry, of wisdom, of prophecy, and of apocalyptic literature all mashed into these letters, right? 
And so just use all the tools you found above and be discerning as you read about what type of literature within the epistles you are reading. You might say, well, what genre is Revelation? Well, Revelation is both an epistle, it's also a book of prophecy, it's also an apocalyptic piece of literature. Do with that what you will. Are you at all overwhelmed yet? Yeah. Good. Perfect. Thank you. Here's some subcategories. <laughs> you ready? This is a non-exhaustive list. Within the histories, we've got, I'm not even going to read all of them. Maybe I'll start. Short, long-form narrative. Uh, record and commentary within the histories, the narrative and laws. Historical justifications, like Esther for the Festival of Purim. You've got historical criticism and warning, like the whole book of, say, Judges. You've got this format called chiasm. A lot of the stories will uh, have like an A, B, C, B, A sort of structure, which is its own type of genre that is used to both in poetry and in also the telling of history. Within the Psalms, you've got hymns of praise, Psalms of Zion, Psalms of Lament, Psalms of Trust, Psalms of Wisdom, Psalms of Thanksgiving, Royal Psalms, Enthronement Psalms. Within Wisdom, you've got arguably theater. Job is written like a play in many people's eyes. You've got sayings. You've got dyadic sayings. You've got opposite parallels, similar parallels, single statements, statements with explanations, comparisons, descriptive lists, if-then statements. In the prophetic literature, you've got visions, performance art, prophetic miracles, prophetic narratives, apocalyptic literature, prophetic imagination, judgment prophecies, predictive prophecies, explanatory prophecies. Within the Gospels, you've got narrative, you've got parables, you've got allegories. Uh, within parables and allegories, you've got, two par you've got number two parables, you've got number three parables, you've got four number parables, you've got miracle stories, you've got sermons that Jesus gives, you've got commentary on the things Jesus says from the apostles themselves. Within the epistles, you've got retelling of story, you've got reasoning, you've got justifications, you've got case studies, you've got doxology, which is praise, right? You've got prayers, you've got greetings, you've got apocalyptic literature within the apostles or the epistles, you've got uh, opinion. Okay. Again, not exhaustive. Yeah, you do run out of breath. Yeah. <laughs> Which gets to our main point, okay? All of this is just built up for this. It is important for you to read genres appropriate to the genres. But God is far more concerned with this single concept. The Bible, at least I believe God is far more concerned, itself is a genre. The Bible itself fits a genre, a unique genre to itself. The singular word of God that teaches and upholds and invites and heals and brings us into the covenant relationship that he longs with us, that he longs to have with us, for us to walk alongside of him, for us to know him, for us to be faithful to him, for us in our darkest times to not be afraid to come to him with our darkest things. For us in our brightest times to not get overwhelmed with our success and forget about him. But to be faithful to the covenant. Another way to think about this is that you can spend thousands of lifetimes dissecting, breaking down the genres, the nuances, the different distinctions of scripture. And in fact, these genres are really just kind of like made-up observations by human beings about the Scripture. It's valuable. It's good. It's important. It helps you, keep you from misreading something, from misinterpreting something. But God isn't interested in us going into his garden, right, 
and going and slicing up and destroying all of the beautiful fruits and vegetables that he's prepared for us in order to more deeply understand them. He's okay with that to an extent, but why does God plant a garden that he cares so deeply about and invite us into? For you to eat it. For you to eat it. What's the best way for you to understand what an apple is? Is it for you to read a 40-paragraph Wikipedia article about apples? Eat it. Eat it. God doesn't mind if we dissect each component at a molecular level. But God's desire is for us to walk with him through his massive garden and enjoy all of its fruits, all of its vegetables, all of its foods. As he says in Genesis 1, when he says, I want to walk with you in the cool of the garden, he also says, you are free to eat from every one of these trees. But one, right? The one where you try and master the trees, right? We don't approach the scripture and all of the technical portions of it with a desire to master and command them. In fact, quite the opposite. We seek to understand the scripture and each of its component parts in order to enjoy to be overcome by them, to be moved and shaped and transformed by them. And the Bible itself is one singular narrative, starting in Genesis, the creation of the world, moving through the covenants that we're going to talk a lot about in a few months, all the way to the end, the new creation of heaven and earth. As Eric often points out, it's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration the whole scriptures are put together in this significant way. And so when you read through the history, the narrative and the law, you're learning about creation and the fall and restoration. When you read through the Psalms, you're learning about creation and the fall and redemption. When you're reading wisdom literature, you're learning about creation and the fall and redemption and God's ultimate restoration of all things. And we find as we read the scriptures as Christians that it is Jesus Christ himself who holds all of these component parts together. And as long as your heart and your eyes are set on Jesus and you interpret everything through him, who himself is the word, who himself is the beginning and the middle and the end, you will get where you need to go. Okay? All the genres become like a master chef meal of Jesus Christ. He's like the host of the table. We use this language all the time. He's the gardener, right, who knows where all of the food and all of the fruit is. He is the plate that all of the pieces of the meal fit on. He is the one who gathers the food from his father's garden and the spirit distributes it to all of us. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How do you understand best the law and the prophets? No, Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. How do you understand wisdom literature that speaks of the glory of God or poetry which speaks of the, the, the intricacies and the deep things of the universe and our position, our place as heirs or exiles of God's family? Well, no Jesus. 
Pay attention to Jesus. See Jesus in the words and see your life being shaped by them. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so if you go to the garden and you want to find life in the garden, eat of its food, eat of its fruit, eat of its vegetables, Eat Christ. And the last point, which we'll close with, is do it gluttonously. I know you've heard that uh, one of the sins is gluttony. Well, that's true. But in every single way, the Bible is unlike the Irish potato famine of the mid-19th century. Dragging? In every single way, it's unlike it. The Irish potato famine brought what? death. And the word of God brings life. The Irish potato famine was all about scarcity, right? The word of God is all about abundance. The Irish potato famine was all about lack of diversity. They had one boring, not even deep fried food. And what do we have in the scriptures in all of its incredible diverse genres where we've got a plate full of every good thing? It's like a Seder meal, that the, uh, the Passover meal that we celebrate, right? It's got wine. It's got roasted eggs. It's got bitter herbs. It's got sweet salads with fruit. It's got green vegetables. It's got water. It's got salt. It's got unleavened bread. And, of course, it's got the lamb himself, right? In the variety of the scriptures, God has given us a glimpse at the breadth of his character and the breadth of our human experience. And in it, we are both more broadly exposed to the details of him and more deeply engrossed in the breadth of his mystery. He cannot simply be explained, though our histories do a good job of explaining what happened and how he's interacted in the world, right? He cannot simply be felt, though our poetry teaches us how to feel deeply and how to feel and enjoy his presence. He cannot simply be understood, even though our wisdom literature does a great job at building up our understanding. He cannot simply be powerful, though our prophetic books do a phenomenal job of dictating to us how incredibly powerful he is. But he's all these things and more, and what he wants is for us to taste him in all of his glory, in all of his ways, in all of his majesty, in all of his mystery, in all of his diversity, to eat him up gluttonously is a lifelong multi-course meal. So don't hold back. Don't get scared of all the genres, but appreciate them for the different flavors that they provide you and the lack of lack that we find in the word. Amen? All right, let's pray. I have a confession. You can keep your heads down. I told our Kingdom Life community two weeks ago, that I was going to share a scripture with them every morning in our group chat. Guess how many I've shared? Zero. Thanks for overestimating me. So, Father, we repent for starving ourselves. We repent for being so childish and stubborn in the ways that we're picky about food. Lord, fill us with hunger. Give us eyes to see and hearts to receive the goodness of your word and ears that are open and ready to hear your voice as it guides us. God, would we not shy away 
from using our minds and all of our intellect to better understand what you have told us. Work our way diligently through your word. And yet, Lord, let us not be overcome by the temptation to have command over it, to control it, to try and dictate what it says or find mastery over it when your objective is mastery over us. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We give you thanks that you're good and that you're faithful and that you are so true to walk alongside us and to guide us uh, through green, fruitful places. Lord, as we go into our week, uh, remove from us all of the barriers that, uh, that we've established, all the idols, all the distractions, all the fears, and instead, Lord, cause us by your great mercy to read and hear and obey your word. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'd like to invite our elders up, and we're going to leave here not too long from now, but um, some of us want to read the word more than we do. I know I do. Um, and so we're going to ask the elders to come up and offer a very specific prayer. And if you've got another prayer that you would want to have answered, by all means, indicate it to them. But just come receive prayer to better receive and better know Jesus Christ through the word. Can we do that together? If you want to pray a similar prayer while we continue to sing at your chair, by all means. But I'd like to invite the elders up to share this prayer for those who would so like it. <clears throat>